Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us. We've got a couple of meaty subjects on the table on this week's show. Later in the hour, Robert Wilkie, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, joins us to talk about some of the tasks he's undertaken as the top official in the PNR organization, responding to some of the personnel initiatives Congress has been ordering the Defense Department to get to work on for years now, many of which have fallen by the wayside. But we begin this week's program with another DOD organization that's exploring ways to unlock the vast data warehouses it already has at its disposal and turn that information into better business practices. The Naval Supply Systems Command is in the midst of a broad reform initiative. The overall goal is to realign its services so that they're more responsive to the customers it serves. A big part of that initiative is made up of what NAVSEP calls the Digital Accelerator. As the name implies, the command thinks the data it already collects could go a long way toward meeting its mission, supplying the fleet around the world. Kurt Wendelkin is NAVSUP's assistant commander for supply chain technology. He's leading the Digital Accelerator Project, and he talked with me about what Supply Systems Command is trying to achieve. I think um, what, what we're really trying to accomplish is to make uh, the Digital Accelerator, which is part of NAVSUP's overall reform program, a way for us to increase uh, the effectiveness of NAVSUP, to increase Navy readiness, and then to, to discover more efficiencies. I think um, we all in our day-to-day lives, we're aware of companies that are using data, companies like Facebook, companies like Amazon, companies like Uber, who are able to use the data to run their business, run their business more effectively. You know, if you really think about it, in everything that we do here at NAPSUP day-to-day, we're creating data. And I think in the past, we haven't always seeing data as a valuable asset in the way that industry has already, and we're really trying to follow their lead to take the uh, the valuable data that we have and that we are creating as we do our, our work supporting the Navy, and then use that um, with analytics to try to further improve how we do business, further improving Navy's readiness and, and lethality. So to zero in on that a little bit more, have, have you guys necked down what you think the most valuable types of data for your, for your mission area might be? And along with that, why don't you talk a little bit about sort of the, 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 the scope of NAVSUP's responsibilities, who your customers are, what the origins of all this data is for people who are not familiar with the organization? Okay, so I, I think we have a sense right now of the kinds of data that we're looking at, but one of the interesting parts of this is that as you go through uh, analysis of data, it really it answers questions, but it also generates new questions, which is causing us to go look in other more uh, unexpected places f- to see if there's information there that can be uncovered through data analytics. NABSUP's primary role is, uh, is supporting the Navy operational forces, so ship submarines, aircraft, expeditionary forces uh, like Navy SEALs. We also provide some support to the Marine Corps and then to other joint services. And then we also do some work with, uh, with some of our international partners. Specifically, um, one of the interesting places that we're looking right now is in food service. So NAVSUP provides support to Navy operational units food service. And um, 
they're on what's called a 21-day cycle menu. So every 21 days the, the menu should repeat. And what we're realizing is there's a lot of data there about what foods people want to eat there, what foods are difficult to supply them with when they're far away from home. And so we're using that information to improve the food service on board because sometimes that's, that's really one of the only uh, pleasures that uh, our sailors get day to day um, when they're far away from home is, is having a nice hot meal. So that, that's a place um, that we've discovered quite a bit and we're using that to continually refine that part of our business. And so that sounds like one of many examples where a lack of data is not the issue. It's, it's how you aggregate it and how you use it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, there is absolutely no lack of data because if you think about it, everything that you do day-to-day um, -day is creating data. The real question is, are you keeping the data? And then are you using the data to, uh, to examine how you're doing your business? And then are you making improvements to your business using that same data? So yeah, definitely, I, I think we want for no lack of data. So what's the approach you're taking? How exactly are you going to go about setting up these prototypes? So we have a, we have a variety of different approaches. We have um, two digital initiatives that we actually got some help from the Boston Consulting Group. And they uh, went and worked with our own folks to investigate different areas where they thought we might have some challenges to our business. They then isolated, I think to begin with, over 100 places where there was a possibility of, uh, of improvement by looking at our data. And then we went through a couple of rounds of shark tanks, just like the television program, where uh, groups were formed and they, were, they built presentations. And those presentations were given to decision makers. And the decision makers voted on which which one passed through each uh, each successive uh, Shark Tank, and then in the end, we came up with two pilots that we're now building to uh, to take advantage of the Shark Tank work, and then to improve our business using data. And right now, they're both primarily focused on contracting, how to improve how long it takes us to get a contract done, how to give our contracting officers better tools so they can have a sense of how much things should cost regularly. And then the other one is with a shipment of uh, depot level repairable carcasses. We have parts that break when they're out on deployment. Those get shipped back to the US for repair. And um, we have some challenges with those not getting to the places that they need to get to as quickly as possible. So Boston Consulting is helping us both using data, but also using some business practices to help work with ourselves and DLA to improve that process. You know, for us, Navy readiness is everything that, you know, and supporting the fleet is really the only reason why NAVSUP is here. So whatever we, we are doing, that's the reason we're doing, because we think that there, there's better support, better readiness, and more lethality in, uh, in these sorts of digital initiatives for the Navy. I want to talk more about the specifics of the pilots in just a second, but first, how are those shark tanks organized? Who are the participants? Were those members of your own internal workforce who came forward and said, "Hey, we think we've got some good ideas"? Or so we, so we. Part of this was um, letting Boston Consulting help us find where their areas, but then Boston Consulting interviewed members of our own staff, specifically people from NAVSUP Weapon Systems Support, which is the Echelon Three command of NAVSUP. And then um, 
as they undercovered areas where there was potential, they used the subject matter experts in that area to build the teams for the Shark Tank. So they, yeah, they were all our own folks. They were coached about how to make their presentations. And, and to each every, every presentation, I was lucky enough to be a Shark Tank uh, participant. Mm -hmm. Each presentation was fantastic. They did a great job. And I think they also enjoyed um, telling us about the things they did and the challenges that they faced in their work. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more, and I know it's early going still, so there's not a lot of detail probably that you can give us on, on the prototypes and where they're going to head. But what, what to, just to start with the contracting workforce and the, the help that you're trying to give them, what, what problems were, were you trying to solve there? So the, the first uh, project that we're working on has to do with the uh, tremendous amounts of information that flow back and forth between the government and the contractor. So when we are looking to purchase something from a contractor, um, we do different kinds of advertisements where we tell them that we're interested, and they usually respond with, uh, with written responses to us about how they can help us solve our problem. And that begins a dance back and forth where we're, we're passing documents back and forth for us to each understand both the requirement and how they're going to meet our requirement better and to talk about price and approach and things like that. And what, what we discovered as we dug into that was that there were, there were delays in there that had to do with how the information got processed through email. So uh, we're looking at something that's called a robotic process automation that automates a lot of these things where say a contractor comes in looking for answers to a question, and we probably already have answers to those questions prepared, that by using uh, this kind of system, it will automate a lot of those functions and thus speed up the process. We're not exactly sure yet how much the process will speed up, um, but it, it's looking very promising that by, by changing how we answer those things and deal with those things that we can uh, we can push quite a bit of time out of our contracting process. Along with that, uh, explain a little bit the, the intersection between what y'all do and the Defense Logistics Agency, because that's not completely clear to me who buys what and where the handoff is, if there is a handoff. And to the extent that there is, it seems like there's going to need to be some data integration work if you want to be successful here. Yeah, no. Definitely. Um, DLA is NAVSUP's most important partner in the work that we do. And so the, the first thing is that at the Navy level, NAVSUP is responsible. So the commander NAVSUP, Admiral Ewan, is responsible to the Chief of Naval Operations to and the Secretary of the Navy to, to supply the Navy. That's NAVSUP's responsibility. But in executing that, we use DLA for lots of things. There are lots of things that DLA does that NAVSUP cannot and does not do. So DLA um, does things like provides fuel for Navy. They actually provide the food. So the food service initiative I mentioned earlier, that's all being done with food that DLA procures for Navy. Um, DLA also procures all of the consumable parts that Navy uses. NAVSUP, in addition to its overall responsibility for Navy, has a responsibility for these things called depot level repairables. So I, I would I think the example that's most easy to think about is something like a car engine or a car transmission that when those break, you might not want to throw those out. Maybe those go somewhere to be repaired and to be reused. So those depot level repairables, things like aircraft engines, things like certain kind of valves on ships or pumps, 
those things are things that NAVSUP is largely responsible for and responsible for the repair and overhaul of those things in contrast to DLA. Kurt Wendelkin is the Assistant Commander for Supply Chain Technology at Naval Supply Systems Command. We'll come back and talk more about NAVSUP's Digital Accelerator Project after a short break. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbia. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Kurt Wendelkin is our guest. He is the CIO at Naval Supply Systems Command, talking with us about the Digital Accelerator Project NAVSEP launched just a few months ago as the command tries to leverage its existing data, part of a broader effort to reform its business practices. And, and Mr. Wendelkin, a lot of the things that we've been talking about are obviously not just IT projects. They're going to they're gonna involve re-engineering business processes, too, in ways that make more sense probably than, than how you're doing things today. So what's the order there? Um, are, are you looking at the business processes first and then trying to come up with IT solutions that make more sense around a business process that makes more sense, or is it more the other way around? We are looking at the business processes first. The um, As part of the NAVSEP reform, effort. Um, we're looking at business process all over the place. I, I would tell you the IT, as someone who's done IT for 28, 29 years now inside a Navy, the, the IT itself is almost never the problem. It's, it's always the business process. Mm-hmm. And so there are business processes that NAVSUP controls exclusively, and those we, we have the power to change. There are other Navy business processes that we, we might be able to change, and then there may be other business processes that are dictated by law. But in these specific areas, we think that we have business processes that we can largely control, and we're working to change. For the shipper, um, the shipment uh, initiative that I mentioned earlier, that's actually going to require a partnership between us and DLA, and we're already in conversation with them about how we make that work for both of us. Because again, um, in our transportation of, of repairables, DLA plays a, a substantial role. What, what's the ideal outcome of these prototypes? Once you have, again, a business process and some IT solutions that you think work, what happens next? So I think um, the way Admiral Ewan uh, envisioned all of this when he he rolled out the NAVSAR Perform uh, initiatives was that we we not only would use these as discrete events to specifically solve a certain type of problem, but we're also trying to change the way the organization thinks and approaches problems. And after these two initiatives are are done, we're going to engage in additional initiatives on our own. We're actually standing a uh, standing up a reform management uh, program office with a program manager, who's large responsibility is helping to receive a lot of the training and experience that we've gotten from Boston Consulting uh, to help us develop the capability internally to solve a lot of these problems ourselves. And and that's been a big part of it, has been teaching our own folks about how to investigate these problems. Because the problems that have been uncovered are problems that maybe people knew about, maybe people didn't feel empowered to do something about, and we're really working hard to change that. Just to get a little bit more sense of the the organizational construct here, so then the digital accelerator team would nest within that that PMO that you just talked about? Yes, it would. So um, 
there there are all there are a number of different reform pillars uh, at NAFSUP right now. In fact, there are one, two, three, four, five, five main pillars, and then four enablers. So customer presence, forecasting, responsive contracting, strategic supplier management, and integrated logistics are the core pillars. And the, and the reform program office is responsible for moving those pillars along and at the same time helping us learn how we can do this ourselves in the future. Not to obsess too much about obtaining an IT product at the end of this, but, but there's going to be some lines of code and some new bits and bytes mm-hmm. d- developed, mm-hmm. I assume. Yep. Uh, where does that live? Does it does it fold into Navy ERP in some way? Does it go into a, a cloud construct? Have you thought that far ahead yet? Yeah. So the um, right now, I think it's going to go into uh, in what we refer to as our enterprise web, which is in the cloud. We we eventually, as we make additional changes, we undoubtedly will will make changes in Navy ERP. But I think Enterprise Web right now is where we're where we're doing the coding and uh, where we think these capabilities will live for the near future. Just to stick with cloud for a second, as I understand it, one of the things that happened that's happened in that space recently is OpNav gave you and your fellow Echelon Two CIOs your own authority to be your own cloud brokers and and potentially Mm -hmm. even go set up your own contracting vehicles for cloud if that's what you think is necessary for your mission space. Is that going to play in at all to what what you're doing here? Yeah, it will will eventually. We are moving out with cloud. We've got a number of different initiatives internally where we are looking at what the offerings are for different uh, from different cloud brokers or cloud providers rather since we are the broker. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really trying to do though is I'm challenging my staff to come to me and explain how we shift the legacy systems that we have into a better platform in the cloud, vice taking um, the legacy systems we have and just shifting those up into the cloud. So we really want to take advantage of the capabilities of new platforms, uh, do some business process reengineering while we're going into the cloud with the remainder of our, our legacy systems. Got it. Uh, who is who? Who, who kind of makes up the digital accelerator team? Did, did those come from existing members of the NavSup workforce, or are they gathered from from throughout the Navy? How's that all work? So the the digital accelerator teams are are NavSup folks. They are from NavSup Weapon System Support. They are from NavSup Business System Center. They are also from um, my own staff in the N2N6 inside of NavSup. In addition to the two digital accelerator uh, programs that I talked to you about, the CNO has a number of digital pilots where we participate, and those efforts are much more across Navy with players from inside of Air Forces, from uh, NAVAIR, from NAVC, from OPNAV. So those those CNO initiatives are more uh, widely cross Navy efforts. My two digital initiatives that we've been talking about are, are internal NAVSUP ones. And just to go back to, to the process a little bit, as you, as you were designing this digital accelerator initiative, were there existing models in DOD, in government, elsewhere that you looked at that you decided might be the most effective way to go about, again, digitizing your processes? So I think we were very, very uh, inspired by the Digital Warfare Office inside of OpNav N2N6. I think the CNO went, I don't think, I know the CNO went and uh, and looked at how industry was doing this 
and decided to stand up an office inside the OpNav staff that really got things kick-started inside of Navy in this, uh, in this way. And then we decided internally inside of NavSup as part of the reform program to add these digital pillars that we were doing specifically for our business. But no, definitely Navy's Digital Warfare Office inspired us to get going down this path. Uh, Time-wise, uh, when, when do you think you'll have a good answer as to when these prototypes have been successful, might lead to something that you're going to take into production? So I, uh, one of the things that came out of this was, um, you know, uh, the people that were helping us with this introduced us to the concept of a minimally viable product or an MVP, which mm -hmm. is common in industry and typically not the way that the government does IT development. And so we are using the MVP concept. And so I think um, probably in August I'm supposed to have uh, I'm supposed to have prototype MVPs. Uh, for the contracting capability uh, to take a look at and see how they work and see what changes we want to make as we step off to the next uh, the next iteration of that project. So yeah, we're we're trying to really take advantage of that and and relearn how we do IT development and deployment. So August is potentially your your MVP milestone. What did you actually start? I'm just trying to get a sense of what the sort of end to end here looks like. So I think the reform really kicked off in March. Mm -hmm. End of March is when they came out with the uh, when we decided on the final Shark Tank candidate. So it probably March, April till August is about what it's it's looking like to develop that. Kurt Wendelkin is the Command Information Officer at Naval Supply Systems Command. We'll talk more about NavSup's Digital Accelerator Project after a short break. This is on DoD on FederalNewsRadio.com and fifteen hundred AM. I'm Jared Serdu. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Kurt Wendelkin is with us for another few minutes. He's the Assistant Commander for Supply Chain Technology at Naval Supply Systems Command. We're talking about NAVSEP's Digital Accelerator Program. And Mr. Wendelkin, as we talked about earlier, the, the two prototypes that you're working on right now have mostly been focused on improving the way NAVSEP handles contracting. You also mentioned food service. So beyond those areas, are, are there any that, that are just screaming out to you as potential candidates for digital acceleration and, and reform? Yeah, I, I, I talked to you a little bit about the, the, the shipping one. The, the, the trail that a, a repair part that is in need of overhaul takes from a ship to the place of repair is really a long and convoluted one. And that, that one has really showed us... Uh, that there is a lot of opportunity there. There was also an interesting one. I like sharing the story where we had a, a repair facility that was able to um, get a certain number of parts repaired each month and get them out, um, but didn't have a space that was free from birds to store those while they were waiting to ship them out. So the uh, see so they were afraid that those parts um, that birds would land on them and make the boxes dirty. So we, so that was one that was a really easy win where we were able to say, okay, well, we think we can find you some additional storage space, and um, and we're working with them to try to uh, to shorten the repair cycle there with something as simple as that. I I think that's really the uh, the thing that I've learned that's been most interesting. You know, 
these ideas came from internal folks. It wasn't something that someone from outside of NAPSUP knew. It's really about getting the entire workforce involved in the process to empower them to, to make changes and get things moving more quickly. So, yeah, just to clarify that a little bit, considering how much of this bubbled up from the workforce, I'm not entirely clear yet what what the role of the workforce here was versus what Boston Consulting Group came in and helped you with. Can you clarify that a yeah, little bit so, Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I think Boston Consulting brought some structure. They brought some examples of projects that were successful in the past, but this was entirely driven by their engagement um, with our workforce. And they use a word called ethnographic research, which, uh, which really just means that they went around and talked to people and found out, hey, how's your job going? Where are your challenges? What do you, what do you think you could do if you had the power to make your job better? And, you know, Every one of these initiatives, the, this idea in contracting about this exchange of documents that really takes a very long time, that was something that one of our folks tossed, told Boston Consulting about. And then Boston Consulting was able to put that together with, with um, robotic process automation and say, hey, uh, we think you can really shorten these cycle times if you, if you get involved in this. Same thing with um, the way that we were marking boxes for repair parts when they were coming back. Some of those markings were being uh, taken off the box because they were also used for accounting purposes. So the, we're coming up with better ways to mark the parts so it's much easier for us to keep track of them. And these are really things that our workforce knew um, that Boston Co Consulting showed us how to, how to extract those ideas and information from our workforce. Hmm. We, we talked a bit earlier about the fact that data sufficiency is not a problem for you guys, but but I'm wondering about something we haven't talked about yet, which is just data quality and data relevance, really. As you've started to go down this path, have there been a lot of areas where, where you've uncovered either problems with the quality of the, of the data or areas where you've said, we don't need to collect X anymore, but we do need to collect Y. Let's start collecting this kind of data. I think data quality is a challenge from the perspective of when these systems were built, people certainly wanted to capture this data, but I don't think they really understood where we would be today. And so a lot of this data is unstructured or structured poorly, and it, it makes it really, really challenging to, to gain insight from that. I think if you look at something like an app on your phone, the way those apps are built today, there are a very limited number of things that you can do in an application. It makes it easier for you to use it, but at the same time, it makes it easier to collect data. So I think as we're looking at systems that we're developing for the future, uh, we want to constrain the kinds of data that uh, folks can input. Uh, so free text fields are a problem, right. Th things like that where people can just put whatever they want in there and then it's very, very challenging to make any sense out of that. And I think if you look at the example of uh, Amazon certainly doesn't need the, the free advertisement from me, but I'll, I'll give it anyway. You look at a, an Amazon page or some sort of e-commerce page, you know, the number of things you can do is very limited. You can search for the thing you want, you get to look at a picture, you can tell it how many of it you want where you want to send it and then you press the buy button and that's it and that kind of information they're capturing lots and lots of really valuable information because they've really bounded the problem so yeah i i think data quality uh is a problem for us i i uh 
I'd estimate it's probably a problem for anybody that's dealing with legacy systems that just had free text fields, and it's really something that we're both trying to deal with the data we have already, but going forward we really want to try to bound the problem a little better and to really get the really important nuggets of data that we need to help improve our business. And I think that one of the questions that always comes up in things like free text fields and unstructured data is how much effort do you put into trying to bring some structure to that unstructured data versus just cutting your losses and trying to do things better going forward? Yeah, I, that is a great question. I And I think there there are tools that are starting to help you with that, and I, inevitably, as uh, machine learning and AI get better, uh, we'll probably see some improvement. But, but I, but for right now, I think it's just it's just a big challenge. There's nothing really to do about it except to deal with it. But yeah, I think as we go and design the future, we really want to try to to bound that because it's really just a problem. Kurt Wendelkin is the Command Information Officer at Naval Supply Systems Command, talking with us about NAVSUP's Digital Accelerator Program. Another short pause, and when we come back, Robert Wilkie, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, joins us. This is federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You're listening to On DoD. I'm Jared Serdu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. Robert Wilkie has been very busy over the last few months. On the off chance you don't recognize that name, he was the Interim Secretary of Veterans Affairs in the midst of a leadership shakeup at VA. He's also been nominated to take over as the Permanent Secretary there. But his official Senate-confirmed position as of now is Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. In that capacity, Wilkie tells Federal News Radio he's devoted more time than he thought he would following through on specific orders that Congress has already given the department to take care of its people, but that DOD hasn't quite complied with as of yet. As he told my colleague Scott Massioni, one of those areas involves top-level leadership to prevent sexual harassment. That was a dictate from the FY13 NDAA. The department had not moved on it. So I, I did two things. I drafted a comprehensive sexual harassment, bullying, hazing policy and um, implemented that service-wide. But in order to show the change in the military culture and the train, change in emphasis on how we treat soldiers as the force has changed to look more like America writ large. I ordered the Office of Resiliency to be moved out of the Pentagon bureaucracy to be a direct report to me and to the Secretary of Defense. So what does that mean? Resiliency contains the office dealing with sexual assault. Uh, it also has the office of dealing with suicide prevention, and um, it has the office of equal opportunity. Um, my view on those issues is that in eight, or eight out of every ten cases, there is a continuum um, that uh, problems that uh, a warrior has may touch on each of those areas. So bringing it up to the level of the earring, I think, was essential in sending out a message that was no longer business as usual. And on the equal opportunity front, um, the em emphasis there was to bring our training 
techniques and classes up to 21st century standards. Uh, as America has changed, we hadn't changed the way we approached the issue. And the goal there was to modernize our schoolhouse, which is down in Orlando, and to make that training more relevant to the times. So it was a message that um, needed to be sent. The other thing that we did in writing the sexual uh, assault and hazing policy, we added bullying. Um, and part of that was obviously a result of some problems that occurred uh, several years ago with one particular service. But we also added the, the, the standard that um, hazing and bullying can include things that you might not otherwise think of, hazing or bullying on the basis of political affiliation. Uh, Secretary Mattis is adamant that politics has no place in the armed forces. And when I wrote the policy, I wanted to send a message that uh, no matter what is happening outside the post of the building, um, we have an oath to the Constitution that we uh, maintain and that uh, we are an apolitical department. And um, I thought that was an important message to send. Right. And have you heard any sort of... Uh feedback yet at this point for for the this new chain of command for sexual harassment and hazing well what i have i have heard is that the and, and there's a time when um the number of reported cases went up and i think that that is uh, a, a result of standards being promulgated to the entire force that um this is not something that you you keep in the shadows any longer uh, and the other message that was sent is that this kind of behavior uh, is, is now uh, part of an individual's record. Uh, the military, more than any other service, uh, the individual's Bible is uh, that efficiency report. And when you start putting on that efficiency report uh, these instances, incidents, then you have sent a message to the entire force that your behavior is being watched and your career is on the line if you step out of line. So that's what uh, I have heard, and I think we're off to a very good start. And this is sort of a, a higher level question, and it might, I don't know if it'll, it'll hit where exactly you are, but, um, you know, training when it comes to sexual harassment, there's been kind of this weird back and forth where some service members feel like they're getting too much training and it's become sort of a cynical thing. Well, on the other hand, you need to uh, inform these service members of the, of the issues. Um, you know, how, how are you kind of wrapping your head around that and, and figuring out what to do next? Well, you, you've hit on something that Secretary Mattis and I are both concerned about, and that is too much training. Um, look, uh, this, is a, this is an institution where... Um, People are trained to follow their leaders and follow orders. Um, my view on the sexual harassment issue is that you hit it first and hard as the young people come through the door for basic training. Uh, and you make it clear that there are acceptable standards. There are accepted standards. And, and that is what uh, we all accept, expect of, of, of everyone who comes through the door. 
the kind of training that you're talking about uh, is the redundancies that we see where people are sitting in front of a computer screen every year for something like uh, safe driving. Um, in the old days, uh, when it came to uh, that kind of issue, uh, the sergeant would talk to the talk to the troops and say, "Gentlemen, this is what is expected of you." Um, they didn't have to be. They didn't have to have that constant reinforcement to check the box. We're still doing a lot of that. We're just not doing it as much as we used to. Um, what the secretary and I have reviewed was an excess of of strictly computerized training. What what we are moving toward as an adjunct to that computerized training is more one-on-one, -on -one, more group discussions in the barracks about how, um, how we behave, how we treat others. Um, the secretary, because of his vast experience, expects his leaders, his senior enlisted leaders, his junior officers, to be out there talking to the troops on a daily basis about behavior and standards. And I think we've gotten away from a lot of that. I've certainly seen it in my reserve, um, in my reserve service. So the, the answer to your question is two-pronged. No, we're not going to overly rely on putting somebody in front of a computer and allowing that individual to just check the box by flipping through a lot of slides that uh, he's unsupervised when he's doing it. Uh, we're going to do a lot more uh, with the leadership of our individual units to get them involved on a one-to-one a -one or, or, group, or group basis. And, and I think, um, I, I believe a lot of the services are, are moving in that direction. I think the uh, first wing uh, special operations forces in the Air Force at this point has done that and, and already kind of taken the ball and run with that. So um, it's, it sounds like it's, it's on its way. I view it in an odd way as, as back... Oh to the future leadership. Uh, and as, as I mentioned, we've gotten away from the, the sergeants and the petty officers just giving people a kick in the fanny and say, go to the dentist, or telling them, this is how you behave when you're in uniform and when you're out of uniform. Um, one last issue I wanted to touch on uh, has to do with the non-deployable policy, and, and just for the listeners, uh, that's uh, Secretary Mattis signed something out saying that if a service member is not deployable for the next year or for a year or more, um, then they need to leave the military. Um, you, you said that a lot of that has to do with just very simple, easy corrections. So um, have you gotten any numbers back on who might actually be leaving and, and how quickly people are kind of turning around their deployability status? Well, the, the initial numbers were designed to shock the system. Right. that the Secretary of Defense was looking closely at this issue. Um, the bottom line is that any of us who sign up, we sign up uh, accepting that at one time in our careers we will be asked to deploy. Um, what the exceptions to the medical standards for deployability include um, 
wounded warriors and and those uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, marines who are pregnant. Uh, about 8% of the force is considered uh, medically unable to deploy. We will have a final regulation promulgated on the 1st of October uh, of this year. What that will say is, as you just mentioned, that anyone who is medically unable to deploy for a year, that individual will go, will go before a medical board to review um, that individual's status. Um, 8 percent, uh, the way I look at it, I try to, to, to turn it into a private sector example. If, uh, if Amazon was told that 8 to 10 percent of its force wasn't available Christmas week, uh, they probably wouldn't be the largest company in the world. Uh, and in this case, uh, the Secretary is sending a clear message that uh, not only for the national security of the country, but for the survival of our forces on the grounds we have on on the ground and in the air and at sea, we have to have the very highest physical standards in order for those individuals to perform their duties. Um, that eight percent number is not as large as a lot of people thought. Uh, included in that number are 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 individuals who, are, who should just be subject to what I experienced when I joined, and that's some young lieutenant or captain or sergeant uh, going to the force and saying, gentlemen, ladies, go to the dentist and get uh, medically approved, dentally approved for uh, uh, this year. So that's the kind of thing that we're cleaning up as well. Uh, and I, my guess is when those are taken care of, the dental exams, the yearly physical, that 8% will probably go down. But again, it is an issue of, uh, for national security. It's an issue for survivability once, uh, once our people leave the country. That's Robert Wilkie, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, talking with Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni. Earlier this hour, we heard from Kurt Wendelkin, the Assistant Commander for Supply Chain Technology at Naval Supply Systems Command, about NAVSUP's Digital Accelerator Initiative. If you missed that conversation, you can listen back anytime at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD or on our podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.